Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Times Analytics Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Safranis, and today I'm on with Jason Thomas. Jason, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah. As you've said, my name is Jason. Um, I have a background in finance. I actually went to school for finance and accounting specifically, so I have a degree in accounting. Um, you know, started in the work world and never really did accounting, did, did finance, and my current role, I'm in a market research role. So that's me in a nutshell, just real quick. That's interesting. So we'll definitely talk about market research as uh, as a function in a comp in a business and and the value that it brings. Um, but I guess uh, and in that area, uh, can you explain the day to day of a person in a market research role? Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you my experience. So. Like I said, I was, you know, kind of finance background and, and I've been with my current company for nine years doing the financial planning analysis, did a little bit of pricing uh, analytics as well, and had the opportunity to join our, what we're calling our global market insights and analytics group, which is a group of five. And I had lunch with the manager who said she was looking for somebody to do analytics for that group. And so at the very first I said, ah, you know, I was thinking, no, that, that doesn't sound like my my area of expertise but then the more i thought about it is you know actually that sounds interesting because even though i'm a finance guy never never a treasury guy you know never a accounts payable guy i kind of like the analytics side and when i came into the group the analytics role was actually a lot of instead of doing planning for like sales planning which i used to do now i was almost planning for the market size so i work for a medical device manufacturer and every year what we do is we want to know the size of the market that we play in not just our sales, but let's say, is it is it a billion-dollar market? Is it a $2 billion market? Is it a $3 billion market? And each of the countries that we have sales in, what's the opportunity? How big is the market size? And so we do that every year because in order to calculate share, right, because we want to gain share, you know, a, a point of share every year or something like that, whatever the metric is, the denominator is market size, right? It's your sales divided by the total size of the market. So every year I was kind of, in charge of one of our product lines, as far as going out to the countries with a template, an Excel template that had all sorts of kind of questions that we wanted to know about the market, like how many sorts of procedures there were in a given year, how many of this type of product are there in a given year, what's the size of the comp- competitors in a given year. So we had this Excel file that had a you know kind of a bunch of questions for them, and I was just in charge of that process, making sure we had the right questions in the Excel template porting out to all the different countries, our marketers in the different countries and our finance folks to fill those Excel templates out. And they, they come back, we consolidate it, we look at it and we, we pressure test it. Be the first line to pressure test to make sure it makes sense, the trends. You know, and that's just finance, looking at a, a line trend. You wouldn't expect the market to jump, you know, a billion dollars or $10 million in the end of a year without an explanation. If they had an explanation, for example, price increases or, hey, there's just a lot more people in the market this year, then okay, we can buy it. But we have to know the answer first. And then we're just consolidating that stuff, presenting it out to management, and then using those tools to determine if there's an opportunity for a new product, for example, determine the market size and the growth in the market, or should you focus on this specific area? So that's how I got into it on the analytics side. And currently now what I'm doing is they let me get into the research side, the primary research side, which is now instead of doing a lot of the analytics, what I do is design questionnaires and work with market research vendors who will hire design questionnaires to put out to our customers, our end users, and just find out more about them. 
find out something interesting about them and then bring it within the company and kind of present it out to management or to R&D or to marketing so they can design new marketing campaigns or so they can design new products. So yeah, that's what I do now. And so it's, it's, I have the opportunity and I really like it to move from kind of a finance all numbers role now really into like this research role where we're really getting to hear from the customer, hear what they want, bring it into the company and hopefully make some decisions based on those insights, that research that we've done. Yeah. And what does that business side look like when you have a analysis of the market opportunity? Who does that go to and what kind of decisions does that factor into? Oh, so are you talking about my analytics role or my primary research role that I'm in now? Which which one are you thinking? Let's start with the research role and how do those insights turn into actions? Yeah, that's that's the hard thing. And I think the word action is the right word because we don't want to do research just to say, oh, and then have a pretty PowerPoint. We present it to management and they just kind of nod their heads and then, you know, we, we store it on a, a shared drive and never look at it again. Um, we're really looking for action oriented if we can. And so you design the research up front, you work with a research vendor thinking about what you're going to do. And even the marketing organization who comes to, to me to say, we want to do some research. You say, why? Why do you want to do this? What action are you going to take out of this? Um, sometimes you don't know, but you should have an idea. So, so just recently we came out with something um, where we found a couple of interesting pieces of information that we could potentially use as a marketing campaign that says, hey, our products are better than competitors' products, according to, for us, nurses. Right? So with this piece of research, we talked to some nurses, and the results look pretty positive for us. And so we just presented it actually the, the other day to a couple of our vice presidents, and they said, this is great. We need to yell this from the mountaintops. We need you marketers to design some claims. Claims are saying, you know, kind of think uh, toothpaste, right? Nine out of 10 dentists approve this toothpaste. Kind of that thing. We need to make some claims out of this research that, you know, Jason's group just did. So people will be more loyal to our products or they might use our products more. So that's one of the outputs is now we got these claims we can make because we've done research. Let's put it into some marketing materials and push it out to people that can actually see it, clinicians, for us, nurses, or even our end users who might feel better about using our products or might sway the decision because nine out of 10 dentists recommend it, or in our case, four out of five clinicians prefer our brand. So that's one way, marketing claim. And what about as an analyst, what are some of the ways that you can connect analytics to a business lever? So that's kind of more my previous role where one of the things we were doing is, like I said, the market sizing, annual market sizing exercise. And if anything changes in the market, you know, you look at the numbers, all the submissions from our, our country, like every country that would submit their things. And you can look at all the trends. If all the trends across all the countries are going more towards, let's say, men, for example, you really want to be able to shout that and say, hey, everybody, look at this. Do you see the growth rate? Here in the market, it's all in the male segment. We really need to focus on the male segment. Or if it got more granular, it's a specific product type. It's, you know, for, for this example, it's blue. The color blue in the product that we make is really popping out. It's growing faster than the rest of the market. We'd actually be wasting our time if we spent a lot of time on red. Because red, even though it's bigger at this very point in time, let's say red is a $100 million market. Blue is only a $20 million market. But if we see that red's declining, really that where you should focus is on blue, for example. And so it's really just being an advocate, looking at the, the data and making sure that 
the organization knows it. And if you're passionate about it, and if you're, you know, you're clear on what's happening, make sure you express it in a way where people will understand. If, if your audience is managers, you don't want to get really deep into like, here, open up Excel file, look at this, look at this. It's, it's, hey, this is what I'm seeing across 10 countries. And you can put it, if you can find a nice pretty graphic, I don't know if it's a, a Merimeco chart or something like that. Um, so people really understand where the growth is. That's how analytics can can drive decision. What kind of chart was that that you just mentioned? Oh, I said uh, I said Merimeco, but really not Merimeco. It's a uh, it is a it's kind of like the stained glass chart where you just have the different squares of different sizes. Um, oh, I don't have my Excel file open right now, but uh, it's one that it worked well for us because you know the square represents the size of a particular market within the bigger square, right? And then also in within the, the squares, you can show growth rate of X percent or Y percent so they can really see how big they are compared to each other. It's like, it just depends on your audience. So some might like a pie chart. It's more powerful than a pie chart, at least for one set of, of our customers. Um, so we use it and I'm drawing a blank. It's not Merimekko in Excel, it's something else. So what kind of personality traits would make somebody a good fit for either a market research role or an analytics role? Good question. So my transition from like finance, when I was doing financial planning and analysis, where we're doing this internal sales planning, and let's say even when I was doing my kind of pricing role, I think you kind of think of traditionally like, you know, the more quiet, introverted finance person, but you don't have to be that person, right? Um, I think it's really just curious. So the thing that was a struggle for me going from finance to this kind of uh, market research role is being comfortable with not having a lot of data. So when I was in my finance role, my planning analysis role, we had our internal sales data. You could look at that, you know, we know number of sales, number of units, all sorts of trends like that. And then moving over to this researcher role, now we're looking at a sample set of 200 people or 500 people. And when you cut 500 people into different segments, you're getting down to like 30 people or 40 people, and you're actually making decisions off of this very, very small sample set. So <laughs> it's willingness to, I don't know, let go a little bit of not having huge amounts of data and being comfortable with making decisions off of smaller sample sets. That was the biggest struggle for me going from finance to market research is letting go of the numbers, if you will, of the large numbers and really kind of understanding that sometimes the small numbers like the quality over quantity, quality can matter over quantity. If you recruit it, the right 500 people, it can tell you a lot. Uh, I want to I want to explore business forecasting with you. Um, how would you build a business forecast, let's say, for something like sales? And who would be the key players, um, the um, who would be the stakeholders, and what is the goal? Yeah. So for me, and when I was in my finance sales role and building a, a forecast, the players for us were our key account managers, which were sales guys. And we had finance, which is me. And then the sales guys and managers, and, and depending on if you're building a plan, your annual plan, sales plan, then obviously moving the way up, it's, it's very important for the entire company. But I'll, my immediate stakeholders, let's say sales guys, 
And so what we do is I'd start off and just do trend lines. Look at the history of our sales and do maybe three or four different trend lines. You know, do a five-year kind of Kager, do a 10-year Kager, do a two-year Kager. And then just look at the different lines, see how different they are. And then the input was from our sales folks. <coughs> I'm sorry about that because they know it's in the pipeline. They know if we're going to win any new contracts, for example, or if any new products are launching. So build your, your trend, right? And then build it forward, your forecast. And then just ask your sales folks to feet on the street. Hey, what's going to happen? Or your R&D folks. Hey, are we launching any new products this year or in two years or three years? And then you start layering in on top of your trend line. And so that's what we did every year. Um, probably spent way too much on it. Honestly, Alex, way too much time because at the end of the day, it's really hard to forecast. And I think what you have to do is feel as good as possible about you did, you did your due diligence. And if you're wrong, because you are going to be wrong because nobody can predict the future, you did your due diligence and nobody really gets upset with you because I think they understand. I think when I was a brand new analyst, I would like, you'd almost lose sleep over being wrong. But then over time, you realize, you know, it's, it's a fool's game to try to be right. Like I said, you can't. You do your best. You can explain it. And really, at least in my company, nobody was upset because nobody can forecast. So that, but that's what we do. You build your trend line. You talk to your folks, see what else might happen in the future. You build that in on top. And then have a couple of other people review it, right? Your finance manager or, or the sales folks, people sign off on it and you move on your way. And then, like I said, you got to just understand it's going to be wrong mm -hmm. and don't beat and don't beat yourself up over it. How would you deliver a sales forecast that ended up being wrong? How would you kind of own up to it? So I think you, you don't know it's wrong until right you get the results. Um, and then when it comes back, you, you kind of do a postmortem. You, you'll look at it and either say, Hey, you know, in my trend line, I forgot to take out this one time event that happened two years ago and it really screwed up my trend line. I, you know, and just come clean with it. If it's something like that, or if it's the sales guys who gave you, they said, Hey, this, this contract is going to hit this year. And it just doesn't, it doesn't hit that year. It's going to maybe hit next year. You just explain it. It's you, you do your analysis, do your best to figure out why, and then just explain it. And then two, what can happen in the future is maybe, uh, you want a brand new customer that you didn't expect to. Everybody understands that. What you do, at least we do, is we forecast a couple of times throughout the year. So you just adjust it three or four months later when you forecast again. What would you say is the core skill in forecasting? Figure out the trend analysis. Look at the history and be able to do the math, right? Have, have your Excel skills. Do your compound annual growth rate or whatever, linear regression, whatever your company uses. Usually there's a process already in place. Do your due diligence and then also figure out what's in the pipeline, what's to come. And that's sometimes hard for finance folks because, you know, R&D doesn't necessarily talk to the finance folks or the sales folks don't talk to the finance folks. So you really have to be willing to talk to different organizations, functional areas to, to figure out what might happen in the future so the fundamental is just knowing your excel right and knowing your like i said your linear regression for example and then being a people person and being able to work outside just finance to understand the things that might impact sales in the future if you're doing a sales forecast can you explain how a linear regression would be built 
to output a forecasted number? In Excel, there's a linear regression formula that I would use, honestly. Um, and it was either like a taking a look at 10 data points in the past or up to 20 or 30. It's one of those things like I'm horrible explaining. You could go onto YouTube, though, and type in linear regression in Excel, and it'll show you how to do it and the formula. And ultimately, I mean, it is what it sounds like, is it's just taking a look at all the data points that you're, you're inputting into the formula to determine the trend and how it's going to continue to grow or not. Um, so if it's seeing that the growth rate has slowed down over the past couple of years, right, it's only 2%. Or it used to be five percent. It'll make sure it's it's getting that trend line a little less for you. It's assuming that if you went from a ten percent growth rate to a two percent growth rate, it's going to weight it more towards a two percent going forward into the future. You know what I mean? The the thing about that is now you have to have some knowledge, though. So you have to have some business acumen because you can't just assume that what's always happened in the in the past is going to happen in the future. That's where speaking to people outside your functional area getting some other help some, from managers or, or senior analysts um, to really determine, hey, do you think this is going to continue? Are we going to continue to, to lose our growth rate? Um, or was there something that happened in the past that's you know just a one-time or two-time event that's going to that's swaying this? Um, and hopefully, if you have enough data points, it kind of smooths it all out so you don't get one blip, you know, one year where you grew 15%, thrown off the whole curve. And so... That's what the, the linear regression would do. But like YouTube, YouTube is great. And speaking of YouTube, how do you learn about uh, marketing and market research concepts? Do you use YouTube uh, for that too? Yeah, you know what? A, a little bit. So I had the, the luck of being that analyst, right, in our marketing sites role. So I kind of got to hear and they slowly kind of brought me in. And then um, I am taking some classes through uh, online just some market research classes. You know, I've taken, I don't know, a few of them just to kind of help me. And a lot of it though is, is on the job learning. Um, and a lot of it too is just common sense. It's a lot of why. You, you know, people come to you and say, hey, I want to do market research. You say, why? You don't, you don't just say, okay, like, well, why do you want to do it? What's, what's the question you're trying to answer? And you use the word action. What action are you going to take out of this? So a lot of it's just pressing back and then learning. Designing questionnaires learning how to phrase questions. Um, I've learned that from other people in my group, right? Uh, I'm in the marketing site, so you learn from others. And then too, you take classes or you can go online, honestly, and, and it will tell you some of the different ways to phrase questions. And the cool thing about it is now when I get a questionnaire, even from like, let's say you went to, I don't know, a grocery store, you went to, to Petco and it's like, oh, how was your experience? You get a questionnaire. That's some of the stuff I do. And so now I look at that stuff and, I'm like, oh, that's a bad question design. Or I'm more appreciative of answering those questions. It's hard to get people to respond to questionnaires. So I appreciate when I get surveys now. So yeah, a little bit learn on the job from others. A little bit of curiosity. Um, don't be afraid to ask questions like why. And then, yeah, you can, you can go online and, and find plenty of, of content about doing research. Can you speak to some of the challenges of collecting data from people uh, to be used uh, in business decisions, especially qualitative data? Yeah, it's so a lot of what we do is we'll outsource because we're a small group, which is five of us. So we'll hire a professional market research vendor to do a lot of the recruiting for us. They'll do the recruiting. They'll help us 
with a questionnaire design and they'll field it and everything like that. I think the difficult thing is is the recruiting. I mean, you're talking about when you send a, a link out to somebody, you're lucky if you get a five percent response rate. So you, you know, you're talking to a uh, hundred people, you're lucky if you get five people that respond to you, so on and so forth. You know, a thousand, you're lucky if you get fifty. So I think, depending on your industry, our industry is very niche, so it's hard for our recruiters to find the folks that we're looking for, just because there's not a lot of them, and then just in general, the response rate is poor. Um, the other thing that's from doing qualitative research, which is you know talking to people, right, doing interviews, doing one-on-ones, or doing focus groups, it's making sure you have a good moderator. We outsource that too. You know, the person that's leading the conversation. I've heard some that are they're pretty bad. Um, and so they don't necessarily get the information that, that you want, but it's preparation. It's designing that discussion guide to make sure that the topics that are covered are the things that are going to meet your needs, right? So you can take action. Um, so it's hard to find folks, but then when you do, you just want to make sure you do the right preparation. You review that discussion guide and make sure, no matter what, the questions that you want answered from that those groups of people that want to want or from the focus group is absolutely answered. And you don't come out of that focus group with like more questions. How do you construct a good question to learn from? Well, it depends. It depends on qualitative or quantitative. So qualitative being that you know you're talking to somebody and it's just open. Or quantitative, right? Where it's they're taking an online survey and they respond either A, B, C, or D. Um, from the qualitative perspective, I think a lot of it though is not lead the person, right? You don't want to say, "Oh, this is a great product, isn't it?" That's a leading question. Or you don't want it to be double-barreled, where you're asking two things with the same, like, "How satisfied are you with this product?" and "How does it smell?" Those are two two different questions. Um, I think, you know, from the moderator's perspective, it's up to them to let the respondent answer and naturally and not sway them, but also do your preparation, like I said, to have all those prompts in case they don't want to talk. Um, it's easier on the quantitative side to say, design an easy or the right question. It's just, you just don't want to ask two questions in one. You don't want it to be leading. And then the responses that you give them, the options that you give them, have to be really well thought out. Because you don't want to come with your results and afterwards say, oh, man, I wish I gave them this option, this particular option. I didn't give them that option. So I'll never know unless I do this research again. And so that, again, is collaboration, working with all different people within your organization, people that have the knowledge of your products or your services that can help you think of those things. And that's too what the qualitative does. The qualitative research that one-on-one interview, it helps you determine some of those options, those answers that you give in your quantitative research. Um, Have you ever delivered an insight that went against the traditional business thought process um, or maybe like the prevailing opinion at the time? And how did that go over? Not yet. Because I've only been in this this role in a year, for a year. I'd say a lot of the research I've done so far has, you know, a couple of them is like, oh, we did it a couple of years ago. We just need to do a refresh. So we've done a refresh and, you know, nothing particularly new. Right now, I'm kicking off some research where it it might potentially go against the prevailing thought. And what it is, is 
for our, the products that we sell right now, our strategy is to win uh, a customer at the very beginning, the very start of them having to use our medical device. Let's, let's win them right after surgery. Now, one of the things that we don't focus on right now is, um, well, what if we lose them? Like in the community, as we call it, you know, once they, they've had the product on for five years, once they're out of the hospital, are they switching products? And why are they switching products? And so our thought is there might not be a lot of that switching happening once they're outside the hospital. And so we're starting to get some prevailing thought that actually, you know, there is some switching that's going to happen outside. You know, people are unhappy for whatever reason. So the research I'm doing right now is going to potentially show that there's more switching happening outside the hospital. And that will be different. If that's true, that's going to be different than our thought where our thought was, no, there's not a lot of switching. Maybe they, right out of surgery, they get the product and they stay on the same product forever. Um, so I'll have to decide, but let's say that I'm, you know, I'm starting to think about this already. How am I going to share it with the organization? I think it's getting people on my side. I think there's enough people on my side and the right people that will help tell the story. Cause if it's the right story to tell, and if it's the truth and you have research to support the truth, it actually is not a difficult story to tell. It's like, Hey, this is the research. This is what's saying, if we want to continue to prosper as a company, we have to listen to this research. It's, it's real. So I don't think it would be difficult actually to do. Because like I said, if it's the truth and if it's what the research shows, then it's actually not that hard of a conversation to have. And that's very similar to an analytics role as well. It's, it's almost like you're just getting the data in a different way kind of in a different form too, but it's going to the same place. I agree. You know, from a, from the finance side, you know, when I was doing sales planning, ultimately it all bubbles up to like executive management, right? They're, they're the ones that are saying, all right, let's, let's go make a decision or not, or stay the course. Same thing with this research role. Instead of having like all of our sales data, like I said, I got a group of 500 people and they're telling me this. Um, and it could create a compelling story as well. Now, the risk is, uh, you know, if we don't believe it, like executive management doesn't believe it, they'll come back and say, oh, you only talked to 500 people. I, I don't believe this. Hopefully that's not what I get, but that's, that's how we do research. Research is just, it's just smaller. Primary research is just a smaller amount of data. Have you ever had to make a decision with limited data and how did, how did you navigate that? So that's, like I said, this, that's this this role I'm in. A lot of the role I'm in right now is we are in charge of the what and the so what. So I'm going to tell you what is, hey, you know, the male segment's really the way to go. So what if you don't concentrate on the male segment, somebody else will, and we're going to lose market share. The now what is, at least in our organization, is the marketing organization. I, I present that information. Now you marketers or you sales folks, I've told you what and so what. Now you have to drive the action, like develop the plan. Um, so for me, I, I've been shielded a little bit and our, we might be switching a little bit. We might start to get a little bit more action oriented um, in the research role. So we'll see. From the finance side, I'm, I'm trying, I can't think of anything off the top of my head with limited uh, information. I think, like I said, it's, if there, if there is a mistake, I don't know, you know, 
and it's an honest mistake. You own up as soon as possible. Even if you you, know, you you only had a little bit of information, it's like I said, you, you document everything. Say this was the thought, and you run it by somebody else. As an analyst, you know you're not on your own making these huge decisions. You're going to have your manager, you're going to have your team, which will have your back because they'll review the things too. And you made a decision with logic, and nobody can fault you for making a logical decision. So I want to ask about a market. Uh, once again, about market opportunity analysis, and more specifically, when at, at what stage would a business be ready to um, produce a market opportunity analysis, or should it just be done right off the bat for any business? Yeah, I think it should be any business. So the market market opportunity analysis or market opportunity should be something you do every year, right? That market sizing, or every other year, it really depends. So you should have an, an idea of market size. And then when it comes to market opportunity, if it's in relation to your sales force, I'm going to say R&D, saying, do I want to design a new product? What you'll do is you'll take that market sizing information you have and ask, hey, R&D organization, what segment are you trying to go after specifically? And they'll say, oh, you know, females that have limited hand dexterity. And so, so you have your, your total pool, let's say, you know, females, females, we sell 500 million to. And then when you come to limited hand dexterity, you'll either look at your primary market research or you'll look at online. And if there's anything available that, that talks about the number of individuals with hand dexterity issues that are female, you can use that. Probably not though. Like you're going to go online and say female hand dexterity issues. You're probably not going to find it. So then you kind of start thinking, well, what's, what's the next thing I can look at? Maybe it's it's population because I know there's a, a relationship between a certain age and hand dexterity. If I know that 60% of those over the age of 60 have hand dexterity issues, then you start using that data and you document it. So I was like, okay. So then this percentage of the market is over the age 60. Or you can just say general population is over the age of 60 because I don't think my specific product is that much different than the general population use. Then you say, all right, 60% over the age of 60 have hand dexterity issues, so on and so forth. And you, and you start limiting the market. So now you're down from, you start off with, you know, 500 million female, then 60% hand dexterity issues over the age of 60. And I know this percentage of the market is over the age of 60. So it's just, it's kind of like that. You use what you can to go from a big opportunity down to a smaller opportunity based off of either the primary research data that you have or something that you can find online. And you have to be comfortable again, is if you can't find the exact same thing you're looking for, what's the proxy, right? Like I said, is it the age? Is it cancer incidences? Where I know that people that use my product are gonna have higher incidences of colorectal cancer, for example. So it's like, all right, this percentage of the market gets colorectal cancer. And, and as long as you document and where your sources are from, and you do the math and you lay it out easy. Uh, and to the point where if you got hit by a bus tomorrow, somebody else can take over your Excel file or whatever your, your tool is and understand it, it makes life so much easier. And can you speak to the value of documenting your work in, in that kind of a role? I was going to say absolutely documenting your work because I've, I think anybody in the finance world has probably been there where somebody leaves the company or you take over another position and you open up an Excel file that you're trying to replicate for the next year. And it's nothing but hard coded numbers. 
And you're like, where the heck did they get these numbers from? If you can link that back to, you know, your source document Excel file, it, it makes life so much easier for everybody. And they feel more confident in your numbers, in the work that you've done. And so even for me, like, you know, I'll document things because somebody will ask me something I did two years ago. I don't remember. I, you know, I finish a thing and I usually you move on to the next thing. And so even for me going back and like, oh, yes, uh, I, I list out notes or I reference the source file. Um, and now I can actually answer that question for this person for something I did two years ago. So it's there for a reason that, you know, our, our brains can only absorb so much information or, or retain so much information. And we have all these tools, you know, we have our iPhone and we have computers and things like that. Well, if you just write it down, that's what it's meant for. Then you don't have to remember everything. You free up a little bit of brain space for your next thing. So you don't have to remember every single thing that you did. Let's say that a listener right now is interested in getting into this kind of a role, either analytics or market research. What networking or career advice would you have for that person? Mm. So like we're thinking like brand new out of college, right? Mm -hmm. Is that the thought, Alex? Yeah. So that's, you know, I, well, I'm 38, which is, I don't think super old. Um, I lucked out. I went on, you know, just applied online. My first job was at Jim Beam, which is awesome with a bourbon company. Um, I just applied online. I've just been very lucky. I've been able to apply online and find things. Um, when it got into, you know, even internally, once I was with my company, I had lunch with the person that was in charge of our market insights group every so often. And that just, that's how I was able to get this role. So I would say if you're able to get, you know, close to people that are actually in companies that you, you know, you do an internship and, you know, you kind of make an impression or you're friendly with HR or somebody in the finance or just socialize, use other folks that you know, it's going to be easier um, to get into a company if you actually know folks. Because not new, I was able to get some, a couple people into our company just because you, you vouch for them, but they weren't brand new. So uh, I feel like I'm out of touch, Alex. I don't know how, how graduating out of college now I would do it. I'd probably do the same thing and um, nobody would pay me any mind. I don't know. What do you do these days, Alex? How, how, I feel like you're younger than me. Yeah. How'd you? I'm 26. Um, I would leverage LinkedIn and I would focus on a very small number of companies, like maybe three to five and just t- like invite maybe 10 people from each company um, to connect with you in, that are in maybe five people that are in the position that you're, that you want to get into or near that position. Um, even a couple levels up, um, is, is fine. And, um, just like call them and ask them like how to get the job. That sounds like sound advice. Now I, now I know what to do, Alex. Thank you. you. I appreciate it. Yeah. I, that's how I would do it. Um, yeah. I mean, that's a good point because you, you reach out to me via LinkedIn and I'm sure you reach out to to many people and Mm -hmm. you get a couple of fish at bite every once in a while. Right. And it, it turns out to be a podcast or like you're saying, or, or a job. Somebody reached out to me kind of cold, depending on on the mood I'm in. Right. Um, and said, Hey, I'm interested in market insights. I mean, honestly, I'd probably reply to them and say, all right, yeah, we don't have any positions right now, but you know, I'll keep, keep you in mind. I'll forward your information over to my boss. Um, cause yeah, I want to help folks out. So I think you're right. I think you, you nailed it there. Um, but you probably have to make sure 
you talked uh, enough to get enough people that will respond to you. It may make somebody feel exposed to be reaching out to that many people in a company. And if you message too many people, it might not look very good. And there's there's always a risk. That's a good point. That's a good point. Uh, a lot of the time people are super positive to uh, being reached out to, especially for like career help. Um, yeah. Sales is a little bit different. Do you have any uh, advice on um, leadership or, you know, building a positive team environment? I, so I'm not a people leader, but I am in a, you know, obviously I'm in a team environment. We have a team of five. I think it's what I've learned over time is listen. You hear it all the time. You know, you're supposed to listen. It, it's true. Kind of listen more than you speak. And then also, I would say, uh, don't, this kind of goes almost counterintuitive to listen before you speak is you do have to advocate for yourself. And I think I'm thinking more from a promotion standpoint. Um, also, don't be afraid to speak. So there's a fine line of, of speaking too much and, and not being able to speak. Um, and I think just being yourself, being a, a social person helps. Um, being comfortable at work. It's it's all the things I think you would do outside of work. Like, you know, if you're if you're gonna be a, a decent human being outside of work, you're gonna be a decent human being inside of work. Um, when it comes, like I said, though, from the promotion standpoint and getting ahead, you do have to let people know the good work that you're doing. You know, I think I've been an individual contributor for so long and I'm starting to think about my career as I'm getting a little bit older. Um, a lot of me was, and there's nothing wrong with it, like kind of head down, let me do my work and go about my day now everybody needs those if that's what you want to do then yeah you can keep doing that but if you want to kind of move up in your organization you have to be a good team player right help others out be willing to say yeah i'll help you out if you need help with that but also advocate for yourself and let people know the work that you're doing every once in a while you know you don't have to be boisterous about it um, you know, I'll talk to my manager, like, hey, you know what I'm working on? I'm working on this and just did that and that. I just, you know, pinged my manager the other day and like, oh, I did this, this presentation and they absolutely ate it up. You just want people to know that you're, you're doing some good work. And I know it, like I said, there's, we feel uncomfortable with that, especially early in your career, talking about yourself and the good work you're doing. But you absolutely should if you want to kind of move up in your organization. It's confidence, which is hard. You build it over time. Um, but like I said, I think earlier is do not beat yourself up. Do not give yourself an ulcer and overthink stuff. If it's logical and you document it, feel comfortable moving forward with it. Don't lose sleep over, you know, the, the small stuff. And at the end of the day, and it might not even be small, right? It's like you're, you're the, the lead person for doing sales forecasting. You weren't the first one, though. Like, there's been many before you. There'll be many after you. They were wrong. You'll be wrong, like I said. Um, don't beat yourself up over it. Move on. And the other thing why you shouldn't beat yourself over it is because executive management isn't being there. So they're not looking. I know you think like, oh, shoot, the CEO is going to come down and read me out now. They're not. They don't care. At the end of the day the CEO had a number in, in mind anyway, no matter all the work that you did. And I think I talked to you about this a little bit, Alex, we did our 15 minute kind of pre-call is, 
executive management has this idea of, of what they want their sales plan to be anyway at the end of the day you could do all this work and they're like ah, i actually want it for 10 percent growth and you'll have to change the 10 percent growth anyway um so yeah Take it easy on yourself. You don't don't get so stressed about things if you can. Easier said than done. Yeah, I guess on that note, um, I, I, I do have one more question, which is how did you expect your career to turn out and how did it end up turning out? Well, hopefully it's not over yet. So, mm-hmm. but how did I expect? I, you know, I think I went in um, when I was young, super ambitious, like, yeah, I want to be CFO. And then it changed over time. It's like, oh, then you get a little bit more realistic because I was, like head down, individual contributor, wanted to be CFO, even though I didn't do anything to be CFO, you know? And so I think over time, it's, it's adjusted and more realistic um, for me. Now, the listeners on here might want to be CFO, and they should absolutely pursue that path and, and talk about themselves. Um, but I probably thought I'd be a career finance guy. You know, I went and did accounting in school because I took an accounting class in high school. I'm like, oh, I could do this, and everybody needs an accountant. So... I was, and I was good at it, got good grades, wasn't necessarily super passionate about it. So never went into accounting, though. I've always been a financial analyst and enjoyed it a, a little bit. I was good at Excel. And I was like, oh, you know, I'll just kind of stay this path. You know, maybe I'll be CFO. And then a couple of years go around, go by. I'm like, all right, I'm not CFO. Maybe I'll be a director. And a couple of years go by. I'm like, oh, I don't know what I want to do. I'm not necessarily killing it at this company. Let me switch to a different company. Um, wasn't necessarily killing it at that next company. So the grass isn't always greener. Is what I'm trying to say. And then I've ended up this company that I've been with for nine years. And the cool thing about them is they're a medical device manufacturer, but they generally seem to care about people. So it's a little bit more rewarding to do that finance, right? For a company that generally seems to care about people as a product that helps people out. And then, like I said, I, I lucked into this opportunity with, and not luck, I had lunch with the manager of our market insights group couple times and she mentioned it, this opportunity and I, and I did it and now going from finance to this primary research role i think i really like it i think i'm going to stick with this primary research gig um for at least a couple more years and then see where it takes me so that's the path now it pivots i was in dcfo that was probably gonna be finance director guy and now i found something i like a bit more and i i think i'm gonna pursue that and see where, where it takes me so i don't know where that where the end is going to be. I still got, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on the way you look at it, probably 20, 20 more years of working before I could retire. So still a, a long path ahead. And so I would let people know too, from the finance organization that these roles exist. Um, you know, cause I get people pinging me saying, Hey, are you interested in a job? You kind of the mass emails and a couple more direct ones. These market insights roles exist. And for some organizations, they're a lot of primary research which is, you know, you're talking to, to users or your customers. And two, some of them are insights roles. Like I said, it's more analytics focused, more numbers focused with your market opportunity sizing, or you're building dashboards to determine the key performance indicators, the KPIs, key performance indicators for the company. And you're presenting that to management. So that's the other thing that finance folks should get out of this is it's not just accounting and treasury and, you know, your traditional finance. There are these market insights roles that I would you know, tell your listeners to look into. And and literally, like, yeah, when you're typing, if you're doing on uh, Indeed, type in Market Insights, and you'll see these roles pop up. What skills would you build to succeed in a Market Insights role? It's 
a lot of it's going to be the same as your finance roles. You got to know how to use Excel and you have to know how to use Excel in a common sense way to do some financial modeling, right? Build out your, your rows and make sure that they're dynamic. So if somebody wants to type in 10% growth rate or 5% growth rate or a population size is a hundred thousand, it could easily change. So you got to build those Excel skills. just like you would win the finance role. And then also just your critical thinking, right? Be comfortable being a critical thinker and, you know, I don't know, taking ASPs, which is simple enough, but also, like I said earlier, you know, taking the incidences of people that use cell phones, right? If you're designing an app, if an app is the thing that you're modeling for, just think about the different things that would limit the market size or your model for those that use that specific device. So Excel skills, critical thinking skills and people skills because you're going to be you're going to need to talk and present your findings to managers senior managers r&d gmo um so get good at powerpoint too and designing a slide and not just throwing and i'm you know looking at some of the stuff i did in the past in the finance organization and i'm almost shuddering at how much how much it sucked honestly because i what i do is i take excel file i did a table and just drop it into a powerpoint and say, here's my chart, and there's numbers all over it, and then I, you know, you'd explain it. And now that I look back at that, I'm like, oh my gosh, I put all of these numbers on here, and really all I cared about were five of them. You know, put on the chart, on the, the PowerPoint, the things you want people to see. So instead of putting 20 rows, and you really wanted to just focus on the total, just put the total row on there really get across in your PowerPoint the thing, the few things that you really want to get across, your story. Don't just drop a, like I would do, don't just drop a, a Excel table on a PowerPoint because I think that will help you stand out too. Because if you can design a PowerPoint slide as a finance person, as a market insights person that gets the story across where you almost wouldn't have to talk to it. You put that PowerPoint on and whoever's looking at it understands without you saying a word what you're trying to get across. Because when you put that 20 rows, you know, people are looking all over. There's too much information. They don't understand. So if you get that PowerPoint skill set, I think that'll, that'll help you a ton in your career and tell the story with through PowerPoint. Do you have any other PowerPoint tips for uh, how to build a great slide? You know, what we do is, so what you want to do is you want to bold. So you, you only have five things, let's say, numbers on your slide. Even then, you really want to bold or highlight the, the one specific thing, if there is any one specific thing you want to look at. And also in your header, you don't want to just say, you know, 2022 results. Unless, unless this is like, depending on your audience, unless it's strictly for finance folks, don't say 2022 results. If you got some R&D folks, you got some market folks in there, in that title, tell them what you'd want them to say, which would be, oh, in 2022, the male blue segment through two times the market, you know, in that title, say what you're trying to get across. Don't be lazy. Like I, I was so lazy, right? 2022 results or 10% growth rate. So why does that matter? That's what I would say. Work on your header, get a strong header. Let's tell them the story and don't put too much stuff on your slide. What about practicing? Like, how, how do you practice for presentations? Oh, it's a good one. Everybody does it a little bit different. So, 
I'm a, I'm a full practicer. So I'll sit in my office, you know, by myself and I will say it out loud. And I'll go through the full presentation a couple of times, which you'll find, and this works for me. Everybody has something different. Um, but what I find is when I say it out loud, it comes out a lot different than in your head. And I find myself doing like run on sentences when I say it out loud as I'm practicing. I'm like, oh, you can't do that, Jason. That's just too much stuff. And so I'll go through again and I'm still running on in a particular slide. And I realize, oh, it's not going to work. I just have to adjust and say just a couple things and stop. You know what I mean? As you say it out loud, it comes out a lot differently that's in your head. So I would say go through your presentation out loud. It might seem foolish, right? That you're talking to yourself out loud by yourself. It's not. It, you'll figure out how you're going to say it. And so that's how I do. I go through a couple times, um, and then I don't try to overthink it. So if I go through it the night before, um, I'll go through the night before. I won't go through it 10 minutes before the presentation. Um, I will have gone through it a couple times, so I know what I'm speaking about. And a lot of times with me, I will have done some of the research, so I'll be more familiar with it. But the thing to remember, too, is what you don't say, people don't know. Like, if, if you didn't say something, they have, they have no idea that it wasn't said. You know what I mean? You don't have to go into tons of detail um, when you're speaking to a slide. So I, like I said, frags out loud. Some others I know take notes. I'm not a notes taker. Find the thing that works for you. But I would say at least go through your presentation, not in your head, go through it out loud a few times to yourself. And if you want to, I don't record, but if you want to record, because you'll, you'll really see how it sounds coming out. And then, like I said, keep keep it short. Don't do the run-on sentences because you'll you'll know if you're speaking out loud. If you're doing a run-on sentences, it just sounds bad and it helps you remember to just stop talking. Yeah, that's really wise. Thank you so much, Jason. Um, and yeah. thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, Alex, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you everyone for listening. We'll talk to you soon.